парой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замолели. Hello and welcome to the SRP Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's episode is the first of seven events for Distant Friends and Intimate Enemies, the U.S. and Russia, the Fall 2020 Speaker Series at the University of Pittsburgh Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies. If you want to see the entire schedule, go to Reese's website, www.ucis.pit.edu slash crease, that's C-R-E-E-S. Before we get to the discussion, I want to say a bit about the purpose of this series. It was inspired by a letter Walt Whitman wrote in 1881 to his Russian translator of his poetry collection, Leaves of Grass. Whitman wrote that while the United States and Russia were so distant, so unalike at first glance, they nevertheless so resemble each other in their historic and divine mission. Now, Whitman's words would astonish many Americans and Russians today, since the living memory of relations between the two nations is one of conflict and animosity rather than concord and similitude. Distant Friends and Intimate Enemies seeks to re-examine U.S.-Russian relations in the context of concurrent historical developments from their beginnings in the early 19th century. The goal is to provide a set of alternative narratives to the tendency to only view U.S.-Russian relations through a Cold War lens. Hopefully, these discussions will allow audiences to become more historically cognizant of the commonalities just as much as the differences between the two nations. One commonality between the United States and Russia is both had systems of human bondage. Russia, serfdom, the United States, slavery. Though both systems differed in origins, practice, and logics, they were systems where human beings were property to be bought, sold, exploited, and abused. Also, in a twist of historical irony, serfdom was abolished in autocratic Russia in 1861, a mere four years before the abolition of slavery in the Republican United States. Both systems, however, were undone in radically different ways. In Russia, It was a revolution from above, a long but peaceful legal process managed by the Tsar. The United States was torn apart by civil war, and enslaved people freed themselves by fleeing their owners for the Union Army. So what to make of these two systems of bondage shared by two unlikely states? How did it shape their future? And how did serfdom and chattel slavery fit within the wider international practice of human bondage? I talked to Amanda Brickle-Bellows and Alessandro Stanziani for some insight. Amanda Brickle-Bellows is a lecturer in history at the New School in New York City. She got her PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 2016 
She's the author of American Slavery and Russian Serfdom in the Post-Emancipation Imagination, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Alessandro Stanziani is a professor of global history at EHESS in France and research director of the French National Center for Scientific Research. He's also the current director of the Institute of Global Studies at PSL University in Paris. He's the author of many books and articles, including Labor in the Fringes of Empire, Voice, Exit, and the Law, and Bondage, Labor, and Rights in Eurasia from the 17th to 20th centuries, published by Bergham. Here is Amanda Brickle-Bellows and Alessandro Stanziani. So, you know, the reason why I, I brought both of you onto this event is because both of you take a, a, a very comparative and in some cases global look at the issues of human bondage and for our purposes, serfdom in Russia and slavery in the United States. I want to have you talk a little bit about what drew you to this topic and why you took the approach that you did. Uh, Alessandro, if you'd like to start. Okay. So uh, uh, when people look at my books, they say, uh, why do you change so much? Actually, it's not so apparent, but there is a logic after all. And the, the logic is very simple, is that after studying some way of organizing markets in Tsarist Russia and the first plan, and after markets in the West and consumption and competition, I had a big hole in my stories, and the big hole was labor. And uh, so I said, why not Russia again? And I was surprised that uh, something called serfdom in the early uh, 2000s was really out of any fashion except uh, a few people. And so I decided that maybe a, a, a serfdom could be a good entry into something broader, which is not just Russia, but uh, uh, broader discussions about unfree labor. This was more or less the origin. And after I met some uh, globalists and uh, uh, they told me, we work on global labor history, uh, people in Amsterdam or also in the US, but we are never been interested in Russia. Why Russia? So I said, okay, that could be a good topic to put Russia into a broader conversation because nobody cared anymore about serfdom among Russianists. And now it's a little bit different and nobody cared about Russia among non-Russianists. So I thought this could be a good starting point. And Amanda too, you, you are taking up a, a subject that has been you know, I, at least I feel, and I, I'm assuming you agree, has not been, has been neglected for far too long. So how did, what drew you to look at this comparative between American slavery and serfdom? Well, my interest in serfdom and slavery developed at my undergraduate institution, Middlebury College. While I was taking courses there in both Russian and in American history, I noticed some really striking connections between the post-emancipation eras in both countries. So just for a little context, serfdom was abolished in 1861. American slavery ended just four years later in 1865. And during the 50 years that followed emancipation, people of all backgrounds turned to cultural production as a way of making sense of these transformative events. So in literature, in advertisements, oil paintings, all kinds of um, people represented serfdom and slavery both in comparable and distinct ways. 
So for my research, I wanted to understand how and why individuals were depicting serfdom at the, as they did at particular moments in time. Um, and that is the, the study that I go into in my book, looking at how and why people represented serfdom and slavery as they did. Let's start with a bit of definition here. Uh, how would each of you define slavery and serfdom as uh, systems of human bondage? Uh, you can go ahead, Amanda, first. Well, slavery and serfdom both involved the exploitation of the weak by the powerful. Both systems began in Russia and the United States during the first half of the 17th century, and then they were both abolished just four years apart. Um, at the time of the Civil War, when slavery ended, there were 4 million enslaved African Americans who composed 13% of the U.S. population. In Russia, privately owned serfs made up another about 40% of the population. State-owned serfs comprised another significant percentage, so in total, the enserfed peasantry was um, a greater percentage of the population in Russia. But in terms of thinking about maybe more broadly serfdom and slavery, I look at the work of Orlando Patterson and David Bryan Davis. Um, Patterson emphasizes the fact that violence is necessary for continued enslavement. And that's something I think is also consistent in serfdom. In both institutions, enslaved people and serfs had very few rights or control over their destinies. So they could be bought or sold, they could be forced into marriages, raped, beaten, or even killed. Davis would call this the radical uncertainty and unpredictability inherent in slavery, meaning there's a tragic reality that anything can happen to an enslaved person who is dehumanized or treated as property. So I, um, as I said before, I had always a problem with the words and languages for a simple reason. I'm a Napolitan, not even an Italian. And so I always had problems with the, what is the correct words. And, uh, and this was the case also with the, with, with the Russian language. And so I never trust myself. And I started with a very simple tool. I mean, why in the 18th century uh, um, sources or 17th century or 18th century and 19th century sources, uh, 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 Russian sources, I mean, they don't choose the word serf or krepasnye ludi, not so much, but mostly they were Christiani. And uh, either you think there is a, a self-censorship, which is hardly the case over a couple of centuries, or there is something wrong there. And so I started with the question of why uh, these Christiani were translated as serf all the time and where it started. And it was very, uh, an interesting story because I found what Bloch found for France in the 18th century when he asked why people speak of serf de la glebe in France when I don't find the words in medieval sources. It was the same story. And he found the origin of this strange translation in Montesquieu and this idea of saying that in France there were some time old serf de la glebe in ideal type and then now there are free peasants. So I decided to forget for a moment this kind of uh, translation and try to see how people really were and what they could do and what they could not do. Very simple. And what I found is not an ideal type of surf. I found, as many people know now, something very close to medieval Europe, which means not a real central system, despite uh, all the ideas we have about Russia centralization, but different kinds of bondage for each state with its own rules, its own definition of what 
uh, more or less a serfdom was. And the other thing is that is more or less like a kind of extortion, the same as in medieval Europe. In other words, there are a whole list of things that a peasant or serf could not do. But after, if they pay, they could marry outside, they could trade. It was a real form of extortion by the landlords. And when you look at the uh, uh, accounting of the estates, you find a lot of entries uh, made exactly with this. Uh, all the serf paid to do what was in principle forbidden. So it was a nice system of, uh, of extortion. And the definition, I think uh, uh, we should discuss about the stories of definition of slavery and serfdom because either we move with Orlando Patterson and we try to find out a general definition or we move with a so-called internalist approach, which is what most historians do and say, uh, we must look at what words and each society uh, provides as a definition of a slave. But of course, social historians would say that this does not allow comparison. But I don't agree on this. I think that it's possible to use, uh, but we can discuss this. We can use internalist approach and to see how and why the boundary between slaves and non-slaves, serf and non-slaves was uh, uh, debated or made by the actor themselves. It was a weapon in the 18th or even in the 19th century to define what a slave was. For many people, slaves were wage earners, for example. So it's not important that I say what is a slave or a free to me, but it's important to understand how the line was drawn and also the implication of this. If I say, for example, uh, just to make a comparison, that for the East Indian Company, uh, there were no real slaves in India, the implication was that you can buy sugar from the Eastern India and not from the West, where there were slaves. So there were very clear implications and there are still nowadays clear implications. So to define what is a slave or a serf, I think we should be able as historians to uh, enter into this debate and uh, not opposing uh, social science with abstract model to just historians unable to compare uh, uh, situations, but to internalize even comparison. People made comparison in the 18th and 19th century between uh, the Americas and Russia. It was made by themselves with some strong implications. When Russian owners say, we have not slaves, we are not like the Americas, they add some implications in mind. It was not just to keep uh, in, in life the, 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 the old serfdom institutions, but which was, to me, the implications of all this is extremely important. Well, I want to I want to bring Amanda into this if you have any comments, because it seems like the two definitions, like there's 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 a, a legal labor categorization, and then you emphasize the use of violence and and the the right to use violence, and that that could also include, say, the sale of human beings, the splitting up of families. So do you have any any response to what Alessandro has put out here? Yeah, uh, yes. You know, I agree. I think I think that it's important to construct, as he's saying, reconstruct um, the two different categories, but also thinking about the experiences. So talking about violence and talking about the day-to-day lived existence, I think there are definitely a lot of parallels between slavery and serfdom, um, but important differences in the economics of it, 
for instance, thinking about how serfs paid different forms of rent to their owners, serfs being tied to the land. Um, I think also the fact that there's a shared ethnicity, religion, and language is something that's important in the Russian case and that's very different from the American case where um, enslaved people came from a different country. They originally spoke different languages, practiced different religions, um, et cetera. Um, they did not pay rent right to slave owners. In terms of experience, enslaved people had far less personal autonomy in their daily lives. They were sold um, more frequently, separated from their families, et cetera. Yeah, one of the things that oh, that struck me is one of the differences, and, and Peter Colchin pointed this out, is the proximity of, of the system. And in the sense that, you know, uh, Colchin pointed out that a lot of surf owners were, weren't, they didn't manage their estates personally. They, they had a series of intermediaries, which began with the bailiff and went down to actually the elders of, of the village. Whereas in the American system, the slave system is a far more intimate relationship where the uh, the slave owner is pretty more or less hands on, um, Alessandro, what do you, how, how do you understand that given this this different experiences of serfs and enslaved people and how that allows for us the difference in those systems? Hmm. Uh, okay, to a given extent, I think that Colchin uh, just took a, a few states because this. Uh, uh, idea that Russian estate owners uh, were absenteist is true in some cases, but we know now it's at least uh, two decades that we know that there were a lot who were there and tried to introduce some innovation changes. So the problem was not just the presence. On the contrary, uh, uh, it was exactly these intimate connections between uh, the uh, estate owners and the peasants against the bailiff which uh, it seems it was an important feature of Russia. Now, if we start from this, we have a relatively uh, different uh, uh, pictures. For example, the role of the elders, but also as uh, Michael Confino wrote uh, when he uh, wrote a review on uh, culture books, he said, but we, you forget the role of the uh, peasant commune in Russia, which doesn't exist in the US, uh, and, the, and in the Atlantic. And the peasant commune means a connection between the elders and the estate owners, which is a relevant point. And this is uh, one thing. But the other thing is uh, the role of uh, race. Uh, Amanda speaks about this. Everybody speaks about this. But even this point is now challenged because uh, uh, last, very last studies on Russia uh, uh, stress the fact that after all, Russia is not just European Russia, there is also an empire, and in the empire, uh, uh, race was important, even if it was not, is not the same meaning as in the US. But so, race in itself, the point of difference between, between the two. And if I want to go on into this, maybe it's precisely uh, the uh, debate today, uh, in Colchin's a, a comparison Russia and uh, uh, um, American slavery was obvious. First of all, because it was written during the Cold War. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I, I, everybody was obsessed with this. On the contrary, I'm not so sure, even if I entered this debate, and even if Amanda wrote about this, 
I'm not sure that we can take for granted today that the comparison between Russia and US is uh, to be accepted like this. In other words, you should find a justification to say, why we do we compare these two cases? We can compare other cases. We can say that because in the 60s, but in the 60s, if I start from my other experiences, we had a lot of debates in the Ottoman Empire, uh, in French Empire, they were discussing about the abolition of slavery, true, untrue, not true. In China, they were exactly in the, the debates about do we abolish uh, hidden slavery here? And so, there was a global debate. And if it's a global debate, I don't say we must study the world. Why not? But if you want to justify the comparison between uh, US and Russia, we must find an argument, new arguments. And otherwise we can say, why well, cannot compare you know, Russia with the abolition of slavery in India, for example. Uh, it can be legitimate, but this means that we have other questions for example, we're not the transatlantic slavery, which is very particular after all. So I think that we should enter this particularity of uh, the transatlantic slavery as a special case of slavery. If you enter into African or Asian uh, stories, we had precisely other definitions of slavery, much complicated. And what if we enter those kind of comparison, even with the American case? It's an open question. I'm not an answer on this, but I think we should enter into those kind of debates. What does it mean today to compare uh, US and Russia? It's not as in the 70s. Amanda, uh, uh, you, you know, I want us to dwell on this this issue of race for a bit uh, and, and, and how it and if it applies in, in both, you know, clearly it applies in American case, but in the Russian case, it's much more muddled, as Alessandro pointed out. Uh, you looked at how uh, free, former enslaved people were represented and uh, freed serfs were represented after emancipation. Do you see any common tropes that speak to a, uh, I mean, I don't want to push this too hard. I mean, you can take it where you want in terms of a, a racialization of the Russian peasantry by the intelligentsia and upper classes in Russia? Because I know there is this discussion uh, going on, at least in terms of the idea of the peasant as a domestic other. Great. Yes. Great question. This is something I'm, I was so curious in my research to find out what kinds of representations would be comparable, and if so, why? So two of the ones that come to mind in terms of non-peasants and whites creating the representations um, as opposed to representations made by peasants and African-Americans. Two similar types would be produced after emancipation. Um, so we have former, we have landowners, um, former serf and slave owners representing in literature and in art, the formerly enslaved or enserfed people as being very content in that role, um, loyal to their former owners, obedient, and then we have a contrasting representation that was also produced in both countries where you have the liberated peasant or the liberated freed person now living in maybe a city, um, abusing alcohol, causing hooliganism, um, causing criminal disturbances, engaging in fights. So I think that these similar representations speak to shared anxieties on the parts of the people who held power and then whose power was challenged. 
in, in terms of the race question, though, just to um, fully answer your question, um, I would say there's far less kind of racialization in the Russian, Russian context. Um, one compelling example that I, that I found in my research was in an advertising poster um, at the uh, Russian Museum in Moscow. And um, you can see an image of it in my book, but it basically follows a, the journey of a peasant who comes from the countryside. Um, he's been liberated, you know, presumably, and he's now uh, going to become an urban citizen. And in the first of the, I think, 12 images, he has dark hair and very large lips and a large nose. And this is kind of his pre-assimilation self. And then the last image of the peasant, he has blonde hair and a very small nose and very small lips. So through his kind of assimilation from rural peasant to this urban citizen, um, his actual physiognomic appearance changes, which to me suggests that if there weren't um, conceptions of racial difference, at least there were examples where physiognomic differences were constructed um, after emancipation, at least. Alessandra, do you have any anything you'd like to add? No, probably a small point. The small point about uh, the otherness uh, seen from the US and seen from Europe and Russia. Uh, it seems to me because it was before I worked on surf, uh, I worked, uh, as I said, on peasants and agronomists. And it's interesting that in Europe, uh, the origin of even anthropology or folklore, uh, uh, there were tight connections between uh, exotic people uh, compared to the urban people and exotic people were both the peasants and people from the colonies. And uh, this is an interesting uh, connection in the history of anthropology. And even Russian specialists at the time entered that story. So it was not only the previous serf, but the peasants as an object which is not in according to many elites. Uh, so including uh, uh, revolutionary elites were at the difficulties in including the so-called dark masses of peasants into, they needed to be educated, they are still savages and so on and so forth. But so the construction of the otherness, it was at that point uh, a, a difficult, uh, overlapping of race and uh, purely social differences. I mean, the otherness was a complicated stuff, uh, which sometimes uh, put some uh, race uh, in, in Russia, like the Tatars, but also non-race stories uh, uh, like uh, the normal peasants. And I think this, uh, this is an important difference uh, with, the, with the US for example, um, uh, the, the European perception of the otherness uh, in that period. Well, I mean, you know, go, going back to your point earlier, Alessandro, about this global conversation about at the time of abolition and human bondage, you, you also have a global conversation with the, with the, um, the anthropology, ethnography, and race science that's developing to categorize various types of peoples and ethnicities throughout the Western world, the United States, and even into Russia. Um, I want to I want to move to um, the how both of these systems were abolished, which of course are two different things. Um, you know, as we know, the United States it took a civil war in Russia. It was a top down 
discussion initiated from the, the Tsar, and that was a longer process that even began in, in under Nicholas I. Uh, Amanda, talk about the differences in how these two systems abolished and the implications that that created in each of these societies. Sure. So Russia was defeated in the Crimean War, which lasted, as you know, from 1853 to 1856. And it was this defeat that um, convinced some government officials and the czar that substantive reforms uh, were necessary. And one of those reforms was the abolition of serfdom. Most of the nobility did not want to free their serfs because they relied so heavily on their labor to produce income. But being an autocracy, right, there wasn't so much they could do to oppose the czar. There wasn't an abolitionist movement in Russia like there was in the United States, um, you know, a grassroots type. So nobles um, actually ended up participating and drafting the terms of emancipation in Russia in order to minimize their financial losses. And then um, that was issued, um, the terms were issued through the Emancipation Manifesto in 1861 by the czar. Um, that obviously contrasts with the situation in the United States where the abolitionist movement, right, uh, is happening throughout the first half of the 19th century, but it really takes the Civil War and the efforts of black and white Union soldiers to defeat the Confederacy, the slaveholding Confederacy, and um, fully eradicate slavery once the 13th Amendment is ratified. Um, both countries face some interesting similar situations after emancipation in that um, serfs or now freed peasants are gaining new rights, um, managing communal land, the right to attend schools and participate in provincial assemblies. A major difference is that they don't really gain um, political representation on the elected level, um, which makes them a little bit less of a challenge to their former owners. Whereas in the United States, um, we have the Reconstruction Amendments and that uh, the, the ratification of those amendments gives African-American citizenship, it gives men the franchise. But again, right, you know, as African-Americans are trying to found schools, exercise their political voices, et cetera, um, they are receiving pushback as well from whites and the people that held power and hold, you know, were holding power at the time. So I think in both countries, you see periods of progress in terms of gaining rights and then periods of resistance and pushback by people who did not want to share power, particularly violently pushback, violent pushback in the United States, lynching, um, campaigns of racial terror, et cetera. Uh, Alessandro, since you also deal with, with systems of bondage and in and, and, and Eurasia in generally, how to talk about the, the emancipation in Russia and uh, and in the United States from that other perspective, from other systems of human bondage? Yeah, the first, the first point I think is the uh, very important difference uh, between the role of war in two cases. Uh, uh, because on one hand you have the Crimean War. The Crimean War for some Russian historians was mentioned as one of the roots of the abolition of slavery, of serfdom. Actually, most historians uh, deny uh, this role in, because it was never directly mentioned by the Tsar and the Commission. So they never spoke directly. But indirectly, of course, there was a role. The problem is which kind of role was it? And the first is that we should not forget that unlike the American Civil War, 
the Crimean War actually was related to uh, some important concerns about uh, Eurasia precisely, which was the decadence of the Ottoman Empire and which power is going to take its place and its territories. So the new equilibrium in Europe and across Asia and uh, was the very origin of the Crimean War. And I think it's important to include the abolition of serfdom into this uh, broader picture of new equilibrium, geopolitical equilibrium across Eurasia, precisely at the turn of the uh, of around the mid uh, 19th century. This was the first. And the second is also why uh, uh, the Russian elites didn't react against uh, the abolition of serfdom. One idea is that uh, they could not react because of the Tsar. But actually, uh, I had another idea. And the other idea is that uh, after all, as I tried to show, there were important shifts in the so-called serfdom system since decades uh, before 61. And before 61, since the early 19th century, there was an attempt of uh, uh, some Tsarist elite to reduce the power of some estate owners by changing the rules of serfdom itself. And there were uh, a lot of uh, scattered emancipation, but to the point that, uh, and I'm not the only one who says this, Stephen Hawke and many others already stressed this point, that at the moment of the emancipation, you have more or less uh, barely a quarter of Russian peasants under corvée and serfdom. All the others had already moved into other categories, state peasants, Raznachinsi, uh, and so on and so forth, which of course you can say that state peasants were serf as well. This is a never ending uh, question. But still, the fact that over uh, um, decades, there was an attempt to uh, shift the balance of power between the state, the peasants and estate owners before 61, I think it played it played a role. So I'm a little bit too, not to um, stress the innovative power of Russia and so on and so forth, quite the contrary. There were much more continuities before and after concerning myself. But what I insist is that maybe there were less, less constraints uh, before and more constraints after. In other words, there was a stronger continuity before and after 61 that we uh, tend to uh, say. And so this explained to a given extent the uh, lack of uh, huge dramatic events uh, as the civil war in the US after you have the revolution. But I think that this is nothing to say as uh, an old historiography uh, uh, argue this is nothing is not connected with the abolition of serfdom in itself is connected to many other things and, may, and maybe we can discuss this after uh, i mean uh, the long-term inheritance of uh, the abolition of serfdom yeah amanda well i was just going to recommend if people are interested there's um peter colchin wrote a really great article i believe in the journal of the civil war era looking at the radicality of the american emancipation compared to the russian case and he really breaks it down um, step by step. It's a great article, and you might use it in your classes as well, if people are interested. The United States and Russia in the mid-19th century are both continental empires. They are increasingly, they're, of course, multi-ethnic empires. Um, Ru Russia is, both countries are expanding to their respective, you know, ocean barriers to in Russia to, to the east and the United States to the west. Um, and the abolition of serfdom and slavery 
have is a uh, different in each place and also was afforded to the now free people are different rights and privileges um what are some given given this configuration of both countries what are some of the the legacies that that shape the the polity after emancipation of both of these systems it's a great question i mean i think in, i think both countries were truly thoroughly transformed by the abolition of slavery and serfdom. Um, I was talking earlier about how both freed people and peasants are now fighting to gain an economic foothold and education and political rights. So there are, again, these periods of progress and periods of pushback. I think racism is probably one of the biggest um, legacies in the United States. Slavery was antithetical to the values of liberty espoused in the nation's founding documents. Um, so then and now, the United States is still grappling, right, with the legacies of racism and inequality that proceeded directly from slavery. In Russia, um, I think that we can connect the revolutions of 1905 and 1915 in part to the responses of the peasantry to the inequalities that persisted after the abolition of serfdom. Um, these revolutions ultimately led to the overthrow of the Tsar, the advent of a new communist system, and of course, that communist system would dramatically alter Russian life in long-lasting ways that we can still see today. Uh, Alessandro? Yeah, I'm, maybe on this, I'm on a different side. <laughs> on a different side because uh, uh, on one hand, I mean, until some years ago, we had this idea of comparing uh, uh, the uh, lack of real changes in both countries. And we had all South uh, uh, and all the studies on this in the US and the dramatic consequences of the abolition of, of the imperfect abolition of serfdom in, in Russia on the other hand. But if we now look even there, there are at least 25 years of works and again, Stephen Ock, but many others have started this. We have what? We have a completely different picture, which means uh, first uh, an increasing uh, well-being. Uh, demographers uh, measure the well-being, the size of conscripts, uh, and so peasants uh, grew taller, which uh, is uh, complicated uh, to conciliate with the starving peasants. Second, uh, we know that they bought increasing amount of lands. Of course, they had no money to repay uh, the lands uh, 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 get at the moment of the emancipation. But as many other people say, with the taxes, I always play this. I mean, I have no money for taxes. And at the same time, I purchase other lands, which was the case. So uh, uh, and there was an increasing market production. I mean, all the economic indicators were good. Of course, we can say that uh, political uh, indicators were not good. But then we have to demonstrate this is a good uh, faith and a good hope that people with more money, they want to have something called democracy and so on and so forth. But then, to me, instead of promoting this ideal type, the interesting question is, uh, that Tsarist Russia presents a case where growing capitalism and democracy do not go together, but this is not an exception. Look at many other cases. Why do we start from the idea that capitalism and democracy should go together? History is full, and Tsarist Russia, to me, is the uh, one of the big examples uh, which show not just poverty of people, but uh, people that increase their well-being without democracy and with exclusion. The, my, uh, my, my argument for the two revolutions, so is not that they were poor people and increasingly poor and so on and so forth, but two other stories. 
The first is that you had something called, for an economic historian, uh, called the Second Industrial Revolution, which is a mass production. And uh, uh, people make confusion between the first and the second, and they think, following Marx, that you have a lot of proletarians with the first industrial revolution, which is not the case. The first industrial revolution was the land of peasant workers, not only Russia, but also in Europe. This was the case. But the second industrial revolution was the end of the peasant worker. And this was really uncomfortable with the uh, uh, path that Russia had taken. All Russian peasants and city dwellers where most of them, unlike Lenin's stories and idea, they were peasant workers and they wanted to be peasant workers. They refused to be real proletarian at that time, but it was very, very late first. Second, they were absolutely interested in a kind of uh, 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 rural settlement. If you look at the Ziemliostroistva at the time, uh, unlike uh, ideas uh, uh, supported by Stalipin on one hand and by Marxist on the other hand, Peasants did not ask for real privatization. They asked for something intermediate, which is I bring together all different scattered uh, uh, pieces of land that I have all around the commune, but it's still in the commune. It's an in-between and they applied for this. But the end of reforms meant either one or the other and the two extreme was not good. And the third was, as many other people say, that the war broke down this process and created new tensions also within the families between different generations and genders because the young and women took the power uh, in the household during the war but uh, in second with the return uh, of uh, soldiers the equilibrium within the household and the commune had to be restored to pure men and this and you have an increasing scattering of dvori uh, uh, after 17 and even after 05. And this is a, another variable which can count. I think it's a, it's a more complicated stuff, but we would rely not the revolutions, not to the imperfect abolition of serfdom, but to something greater, which is the disconnection between uh, uh, the Russian path and the second industrial revolution with the big machines, big capitals, and this didn't fit with this path. Uh, Amanda, in, in your study of, of representation, but also the self-representation of freed people in both Russia and, uh, and the United States, how did they imagine themselves as part of the polity after emancipation? What, what, can, we, what can you say about how they imagined how they would fit into this, this new configuration? That is a great question. I mean, I think Alessandro's point about industrialization, I completely agree that that is something that we had not talked about yet that was a hugely important in contributing to the transformation of both countries um, in both nations after emancipation industrialization leads to the growth of cities and the opening up of job opportunities that attracts um, migrants right um, freed people in America and freed peasants in Russia from the countryside to the cities um, especially in the Russian case that um, is can, is disruptive for peasant communities, right? You have men working in the cities, coming back and forth, sending money home. Um, you know, some people in, at home, right, are very poor then because, agri you know, the issues with agriculture. Um, so some of the, so thinking about the representations, it's interesting. Some of the most interesting sources 
I found that were these unpublished kind of short stories in mass-oriented periodicals in Russia. And a lot of them would feature these peasant protagonists who had left the country and moved to the city to find um, new lives for themselves. And there was a real kind of sense of tension and contradiction in the new life and in the old life and whether the new life was better than the old life, whether the sacrifices that peasants were making was, was, were worth it for them. Um, so there's some ambiguity, I think, in the way that they felt about the consequences of industrialization and those decisions to move to the cities. And, and what about for, for African-Americans? You know, I think just thinking about some of the, the, the narratives I read um, from freed people, you get the sense that economically the situation is much better in the cities. You know, the, 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 the um, shift to wage labor is definitely helpful. Um, but again, right, you know, those kinds of shifts are definitely big transitions and can be disruptive to people's lives. So things are not perfect in the cities, right? They're, they're, I mean, in fact, I can't believe we haven't talked about this yet, but like the race riots in cities, right, between um, – people who don't or afraid that African-American freed people are going to steal their jobs and that just the racism that contributes to that. So definitely, right, cities can be hotbeds of violence as well um, in the United States. Right, right, definitely. I mean, it's, it's yeah, the, I, the, I think the, the dynamics, the, the demographic dynamics, particularly in the latter part of the 19th century in the United States of, uh, of African-Americans moving north into cities and the, the you know, and I like to think of them more as refugees from violence in the South, uh, as much as being pulled there because of changes in industrialization and economics. Um, you, it, this is a, a something that doesn't compare very well with the Russian case, whereas they're being pulled more or be pushed by other factors than certainly having to leave, uh, you know, violence. Uh, Alessandro, do you have any anything you'd like to add to this? Uh, a small point, uh, I was thinking when Amanda was uh, talking about this, uh, maybe uh, in a, always in an economic, I'm sorry, I'm mostly on that side, but uh, the US, in my comparison with the peasant workers and second industrial revolution and so on and so forth, actually were the exception. Were the exception because since at least the mid 19th century, was the country where the peasant worker uh, disappeared the first. I mean, uh, the uh, concentration of production, capital, and uh, real wage earners were uh, the characteristics of the North, at least, of the US. And on the contrary, it was not the main future in Europe, including Britain. So uh, the Russian case is not so exceptional. It's an extreme case when compared to France, Russia and even to uh, UK, but the US are really on the other side, which means that the abolition of something uh, like slavery or serfdom, it's so different because you have not an opportunity of having those kind of uh, uh, peasant worker which was available elsewhere. This was not available in the US. Uh, and uh, either you work uh, in the plan, in the uh, inheritance of plantation, or you go to town. You have not this possibility. At least you have not such a huge possibility as in Europe, or also in its colonies. You have, and Fred Cooper uh, shows very well 
in all African situations, uh, the abolition of the so-called abolition of slavery at the end of the 19th century, in principle, colonizers wanted either peasants or proletarians, but Africans actually became peasant workers all the time. Mm. And in India was this, and in Russia was this. So from this point of view, US is the real world exception in a so-called uh, earlier proletarians, but you cannot find them uh, thanks, Marx, elsewhere. Well, I, I mean, I have to say, like, in this experience of migrant labor, or, or like in Russia, the Othod, I mean, in, in America, you have racism. I mean, racism racism functions in the American system as a way to to maintain uh, control, social control over the now free population in space, right? I don't know if what you would say to that, Amanda. Can you can you repeat that one more time? What, what I mean, what I mean is that you know, in this difference between why you don't have necessarily a large migratory uh, labor where you know African Americans go in the cities and then migrate back in a seasonal way, say back to you know rural rural spaces, is because racism in the in after particularly after the end of Reconstruction. Racism and the the black codes and other you know uh, the forced labor situation is there to keep them fixed in space rather than allow for any travel. Right, the the, the old slavery system in some ways gets reconstructed to maintain. Right, well, share sharecropping. Right, so it's the mobility is certainly difficult in the post war South, um, and the like you said, these laws are in place to recreate slavery in a sense to recreate the conditions of power right um so yeah i would agree with you definitely how are both of these systems remembered um you know in the united states we have a very large and living memory of of slavery um it's it it's still part of our national consciousness part of the the so-called national conversations that we repeatedly have um as in russia i'm i don't know what the memory of serfdom is and and part of it i think is because well in 1917 after 1917 they killed all the masters Uh, uh, whereas in many respects in the united states the the descendants of the masters are still around so i i don't i don't know if you if both of you have any comments on this but i'm curious about the differences in memory of these systems um, well, I can speak more to, so I can speak to pre-1917. So the epilogue of my book basically uh, compares the 50-year anniversaries after emancipation, which were actually held two years apart, 1911 in Russia and then 1913 in the United States because people were thinking about the Emancipation Proclamation. So very interesting parallels between the ways that both institutions were remembered. Um, There were ceremonies, monuments were constructed, um, articles and books were published, mass-oriented collectible ephemera was produced, etc. And then if you take, so, you know, there's this, right, they're commemorating both events, um, but in celebrating, actually, emancipation in both countries. But what's Interesting, too, is if you dive into what was written, you see people trying to reflect on the present to connect current events to historical ones. And then people have different takes in both countries. Some people look at the problems of the present in the turn of the 20th century and connect that to the past, um, whereas some are promoting a more idealistic narrative of progress. 
Some people are praising post-emancipation reforms, and some people are saying these reforms are inadequate. They were inadequate, and they've led to racism and inequality that persists today. One of the most interesting uh, reads was um, an essay that Lenin wrote um, in Russia, basically calling the abolition of serfdom an unfinished revolution and advocating a second revolution in 1911. So just a few years before the 1917 revolution. Interesting how Reconstruction is sometimes, I think uh, uh, Eric Foner referred to it as an unfinished revolution, right? <laughs> Interest, interesting echo. Uh, <laughs> Alessandro, do you have it about the memory, any comments about the memory? No, a few, a few, a few words. The first is that under the Soviet, of course, you have just the passage from feudalism to capitalism, and so the abolition in itself was not an important act. But on the contrary, as you know, after '91 in Russia, the abolition of serfdom, together with the, uh, the the end of the Second World War, and of course the collapse of uh, Soviet Union are among the three big dates. Uh, and of course you have to add that Peter the Great uh, is the fourth, which are the dates to be remembered in Russia. Of course, with the same attitude as before, uh, no discussions about this, no continuities, nothing to discuss because it was a huge break. But at the same time, it's interesting because you had, we had uh, cross-border discussions in France because on one end you have Russians uh, exalting the abolition of serfdom, while in France during the same years in the early 2000s, we have difficulties in celebrating the abolition of slavery here, as you know, with a lot of tensions, the role of uh, French in the slave trade, not so important because it's important. And even today you have so big debates on the role of uh, uh, slavery and capitalism. In the UK today, it's so important because as you know, most uh, UK historians refuse the new history of capitalism uh, of the American side. Uh, on the UK side, uh, there is problem. Uh, profits of capitalism made by slavery is not true. We have domestic markets. We have many other things, but not slavery. And the French, the same. Okay, but the empire was so costly. We had no real profits. We had something different. We are nice. I mean, there is a problem, and there is the same problem in the among Portuguese and the abolition of slavery in, in the Portuguese empire. I mean, from this perspective, even if it's a, a little bit not flexible and ideological, the exaltation of the abolition of serfdom in Russia contrast uh, the uncertainties uh, in Europe about the abolition of slavery in the European empires, which is still a problem. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, fa I'm sorry, man. Did you have something to add? No, I was just saying very interesting to hear yeah. that perspective, Alessandra. Yeah, especially the, the statue of Alexander II they have near, uh, right next to Christ Our Savior Cathedral uh, was erected, I believe, in the early 2000s, I think, which is quite interesting. Uh, on the Soviet case of the, the memory of serfdom, I don't know if everyone, anyone's actually looked at that this, but around the 100th anniversary, there is a series of publications on, they're called something like, I won't say the Russian, but in English, it would be the Documents on the Peasant Movement. There's these volumes and volumes and volumes of, of state documents that are published in the 1960s. And I wonder if this is this, uh, could be seen, or maybe the project itself was a memory project in and of itself. Um, I, I don't think anyone has looked at these old books in years. <laughs> I remember them from I remember from grad school. Oh yeah, Amanda, maybe you have. <laughs> well, you know, you're reminding me of a great book to recommend to the audience here. John McKay wrote a book about 
Uncle Tom's Cabin and its impact in Russia. And he traces the impact of the book from the 1850s all the way through the present. And some of the most interesting sections were on the uses of the book during the Soviet Union. So it just, I mean, it connects to, to the book connects to just these larger views of what Russians thought of slavery compared to serfdom, race relations, lots of things. It's definitely a great read. My final question is, you know, both of you look at, you know, going back to the beginning here, where both of you look at systems of human bondage in a comparative way. Uh, what does this comparative approach add to your understanding of systems of serfdom and slavery? Well, uh, uh, just to give you another insight, so you think I have a 140 years old, but okay, uh, I started with a guy uh, called Franco Venturi, and at the time, Venturi, yes, I was one of the last with him, because I, I was I was working on Chayanov, that's the problem, and he told, what do you want from me with the neo-populist? But anyhow, Venturi had an idea in mind, and he told me that, uh, Alessandro, uh, uh, if you don't make a comparison, you can never understand a place. And people who say that they don't make a comparison, they don't say, they don't speak the truth, because actually everybody makes implicit comparison. When they say, you know, in US it's like this because, and they come up with stories, uh, identifying a kind of specificity of a, of a place. So to me, there was never a doubt that instead of making implicit comparison, it would better to make explicit comparison by saying, how do I compare? And over time, I also, I'm beyond, I think I'm against the uh, um, religious war, in particular between uh, uh, comparativist and connectivist. You know, that now there is a, uh, entanglement against comparison. Uh, uh, maybe in Russian stories a little bit uh, less, but in global history, you have the uh, tribe of a comparativist against the tribe of entangled and connected people. And I don't know why we should have a word on this, because I just uh, assume that the two perspectives are useful to ask different questions. In other words, some connections give me the real uh, interfla in interface between places and the situation of ideas, people, and even institutions. People thought of uh, uh, post-slavery or post-serfdom by looking at other places. So it's important, the situation. And at the same time, sometimes uh, uh, ideas or people do not circulate but this does not mean that I cannot ask the question. The typical question that some people say is why the Chinese stopped overseas explorations, why the British not? In this case, you have not a, an entanglement story. You have not circulation of ideas between the two countries, but probably with the comparative approach, you have the right to ask this question, which is a real question. So I don't know why we cannot have both the kind of questions. Anyhow, to me, it's just impossible uh, not to think in comparative ways because you always do it. I agree. I agree with you, Alessandro. Um, I think comparative history or the comparative methodology is extremely useful. In the case of history, I think it helps you identify the shared aspects of two cases, or it helps you identify the differences. But maybe even more importantly, if the differences are obvious, you can pinpoint the reasons why one set of events or contexts led to particular differences versus in the, in the, in the, in the other case that you're comparing. Um, so looking at slavery and serfdom, you know, again, my focus is on the post-emancipation eras. But 
I think that my study helped ex helped explain things to me about the role of race, the role of um, varying degrees of political power um, in determining particular outcomes and determining representations. So yeah, I think comparative history is definitely useful. Mm -hmm. uh, Amanda, if I if I may ask a, a question specifically about your book, you know, your book just came out this year. Um, we are in the midst of a, a, a long and much needed uprising against racism uh, in the United States. Uh, it, having published this book and, and, and having, you know, done this study, does it make you reflect on the present uh, in a different way that you might have not have earlier? I mean, it's, you know, so much has been happening um, in the country and in the world. I think so many places now are, right, thinking historically, thinking about their nation's role, as we talked about in slavery and the slave trade, thinking about race relations. Um, I think looking at these cultural representations, you know, is helpful because we can understand cultural representations today and those connections between the racism of the past and the present. Um, looking at self-representations, all of these things, right, can help us. Um, so, I mean, of course, yes, definitely been reflecting on these things. Yeah, yeah, because you've been, I know you've been, you've written about it in, you know, last year, I believe, for the uh, 1619 project, you wrote something. So, um, Alessandro, I don't know if you have anything to add about it in terms of your work and reflecting on some of these issues in the present. No, the real problem is that, as you know, today there is a huge debate in France uh, uh, whether uh, violences uh, in the US are comparable to violences in France. And if there is a racism in France, of course, for official French, there is no racism because we have no statistics and so no racism. Uh, but this is a major problem, again, on how to uh, discuss uh, immigration and the abolition of uh, slavery in the French empire. And uh, this is an open question because uh, France never stopped discussing this problem and uh, uh, the, the solution of not of uh, domestic immigration, but of uh, former colonies immigration is still very, very tense in France. And so the questions uh, related to the abolition of multiple slaveries and I think the connections uh, between Russia, US and the French empire is a way of uh, discussing this and to avoid, you know, easy opposition, uh, fake comparison between U.S. full of racism, France no racism. <laughs> On the contrary, uh, the comparison is probably the connection between uh, racism, post-slavery, and nationalism, uh, uh, which is an interesting topic in both uh, nowadays Russia, uh, nowadays U.S. The problem is not to be isolated, but precisely how uh, uh, in both cases, if you want, Russia and the US react to the global today. Uh, I, I never think that all the so-called localist approaches in the US are just an idea of closing. It's just that Trump and many others have their own idea of what the global should be, which means the US above everybody, but they want it, but in their own way. And so all the rest comes 
after, after this. And uh, putting connections between nationalism and the memory, historical memory, is also crucial to this. And France, of course, would like always to play a role, even if it's out of any, I mean, realistic <laughs> uh, uh, real role of France since many decades. But anyhow, there is a self-perception here. And still, there is a problem uh, of the definition of a French in a global perspective, where you want to defend the national within the global. And probably there is something there to be developed. That was Amanda Bricobellos and Alessandro Stanziani. Amanda Bricobellos is a lecturer in history at the New School in New York City. She got her PhD in history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 2016. And she's the author of American Slavery and Russian Serfdom in the Post-Emancipation Imagination, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Alessandro Stanziani is a professor of global history at EHESS in France and research director of the French National Center for Scientific Research. He's also the current director of the Institute of Global Studies at PSL University in Paris. He's the author of many books and articles, including Labor in the Fringes of Empire, Voice, Exit, and the Law, and Bondage, Labor, and Rights in Eurasia, 17th to 20th Centuries, published by Bergam. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, Please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of rings at srbpodcast.org. As always, thanks to all my patrons and supporters, and you can find past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time. Who's taking